0: And so these contrasting banquet parties, they're captured most memorably in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. So a father had two sons, and one foolishly ran away and squandered his inheritance. But he comes back eventually repentant, and his father forgives him, and he throws this huge party to celebrate my son who was lost but now is found. But the older brother, who never left his father, he's angry, and he resents his father's generosity to this undeserving son. In this famous parable, Jesus is explaining his whole kingdom mission to these leaders. His parties represent God's joyous welcome of every kind of person into his family. The only entry requirement is humility and repentance. And so it highlights the tragedy of Israel's leaders who reject Jesus and his upside-down kingdom community. And this resistance to Jesus, it ramps up, and he finally arrives in Jerusalem for Passover. As he nears the city, he's weeping. His disciples are hailing him as the Messianic king, but Israel's leaders are denouncing him. And he knows that their rejection of his kingdom of peace is going to set Israel on a road of resistance and rebellion against the Roman Empire. It will bring the city's downfall.
1: Me. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First, I'm going to warn you that my voice is slowly but surely going out today, so if it cuts out in the middle of the sermon and you miss part of it, just know that it's not a very good sermon anyway, so you didn't miss anything. (laughs) Second, I'm going to tell you I'm not actually reading from the parable of the prodigal son. That video does set up some background, though, just in the idea of the, the resistance that Jesus is facing from the people around him in his day but also the resistance that his disciples are going to face later on. And that's going to be important to uh, what we are reading from, which is Luke 19, verses 11 through 26. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 40 BC, Herod the Great made a trip to Rome to ask the Roman emperor to appoint him as the king over Judea. And 36 years later, his son Archelaus did the same thing. So the, the parable opens with a political scene that Jesus' listeners would have been really familiar with because this had happened twice in living memory. So this, this fictional nobleman that he has concocted here is really confident that he'll actually receive what he's asking for, but obviously not everybody else is. So he calls ten of his servants, and he gives each of them the equivalent of about 100 days' wages for the average working man. And this is a, just a free gift from a generous master to each of his servants. They've done nothing to deserve it. And he tells them to uh, in, in, you know, put the money to work until he comes back, to engage in trade, to engage in business. And English translations have always translated this passage as saying, um, until I come back. And that implies that he's telling his servants, this is your chance to prove yourself. Right? Show me how good you can be in the marketplace Show me how much money you can earn with this gift, and then I'll judge you based on that. But our first clue that that's not the best way to approach the parable is that when the master comes back, he commends his servants for being faithful, not successful. It turns out you can actually translate the master's statement differently. It can be translated as, engage in business because I am coming back, not until... And that's how most non-English translations do it. And it changes the meaning because, you see, in this day and age, there is no such thing as a stable political institution. Transfers of power are not peaceful. They are times of instability, violence, anxiety, great uncertainty and stress. And we know that this nobleman is not popular because there's a delegation following him. To go and tell whoever he's trying to get this kingship from that they don't want him to rule over them. So the outcome of his trip is in doubt. Anyone who's trying to do business in his name before he returns is going to face extreme opposition and they're going to be going to face suspicion. During times of uncertainty, the smart thing to do is to bury the money where only you can find it and wait for better days. In fact, archaeologists will gauge the political stability of any given period in history by how many caches of hidden money they find lying around. Because when things are uncertain, people take their money and hide it. In the real world of this parable, King Herod went to Rome, and he was successful. He was appointed king. But when his son made the same trip 36 years later, he was banished. No one knows how a journey like this is going to end. So what this nobleman is really doing is he's seeing which of his servants are willing to take the risk and openly declare themselves loyal to him during his absence in a place where he is strongly and vehemently opposed. Now the unspoken truth here, the elephant in the room, is that the servants who are faithful, who actually engage in trade on their master's behalf while he's gone, they would have endured a lot of suffering. They probably would have been beaten. They would have been thrown out of businesses. They would have been threatened, treated with constant suspicion. And in fact, to, to make any money at all in that situation, they probably had to work day and night nonstop just to find people willing to partner with them. See, it's easy. It's, it would be easy for the servants to publicly declare themselves faithful to this man after he returns, when it's safe. He wants to know which of his servants will be faithful when faithfulness comes with a high cost. All over the world and throughout history, Christians have lived among people who did not want Jesus to rule over them. First, there are the the various... (sighs) pagan cultures who surround them in biblical times. And, of course, there's the Jewish people who Jesus and his apostles deal with at first. But wave after wave of people come along who don't want Jesus to rule over them. First, there are the Gnostics who who create an ideology where where Jesus tells them to discover God within themselves and they're, they're able to remake God in their own image. It's an ancient heresy that's rearing its head again in our culture today. Then there were the Docedists, who uh, didn't like a word that became flesh, so they created a spiritual word who didn't challenge them so much and let them do more or less whatever they wanted as long as they kept themselves spiritually pure. Islam came along and created a new Jesus who was nothing more than a prophet bringing guidance, not the Lord of all creation. Most Christians in most of the world throughout most of history have lived in places where they are surrounded by people who despise Jesus and his message. We are only just now getting a small taste of how most Christians have had to live. And in all likelihood, you and I will never experience opposition on the level that most Christians have. In this parable, when the master returns, he asks a question that, again, it gets lost in translation because it usually gets rendered as like, how much has been gained or something along those lines. And that basically is like, show me the money, right? How much did you earn? But again, most non-English versions, and especially the Arabic translations that come out of the Middle East, they render this as, how much business has been transacted? Not about how much did you earn, how much did you try? In other words, it's not about how successful were you, it's how much did you openly and publicly declare your loyalty to me while I was gone? And notice how the faithful servants respond, too, right? They don't talk about their business model or their profit margins. They tell the master, your gift has produced this fruit. It's not about their work. It's about the gift that they had and how they put the master's gift to work. And there's humility there. They understood the nature of the gift. They were faithful, and that faithfulness has borne fruit. And as a result, they're rewarded with greater responsibilities, but the third servant claims to be afraid of his master. And that's a little bit misleading because, of course, what he's really afraid of is that if his master didn't return, he'd have backed the wrong horse if he had publicly declared his loyalty. So then he tries to compliment his master. It doesn't sound like a compliment because he talks about how he knows he's a hard man who takes out what he doesn't put in and reaps what he does not sow. But it is a compliment. You see, there's, there are plenty of cultures in the ancient Middle East where... Um, They don't make their living by agriculture or by trade, but by stealing from other people. Entire culture is built on on raiding their neighbors. And you actually see echoes of that in the Old Testament. You see plenty of passages where uh, the, the Hebrews are plundering their neighbors, and it's celebrated. There's even a story in ancient Jewish literature, not within the Bible, but just their sort of body of ancient literature, about King David that simultaneously describes him as a man who perfectly upholds the Torah, even as he is encouraging his Israelite followers to go and plunder all their neighbors because that is the best possible way to feed all the people of Israel. A little bit of a different value system than what we have today. So the servant thinks he's paying this master a compliment. If his master is one of those people groups who make their living by raiding their neighbors, this would in fact be a compliment because in those cultures, the measure of a man is precisely by how much he can reap that he did not sow. But he's misjudged him. He's completely misjudged him. Because it turns out his master is not the chieftain of, of a raider clan or nomadic people who have to live that way. He's, he's a nobleman living in a, a settled community. This is an insult. And the faithful servants had no trouble understanding their master's nature, but this one misjudges him. And so his response is to effectively just leave him with the the twisted, inaccurate view of who his master is. That's the judgment that's pronounced on him. You think that's who I am? Very well. I'm going to leave you with that view. The way we live influences how we see God. And so the overall point is this, the one who responds to God's gifts with faithfulness receives greater gifts. The one who's unfaithful loses the gifts with which they began. And it's not talking really about material gifts so much as the things that we might call spiritual gifts. The things that, that you are given by God with which you can make a difference in the world. And so the parable concludes with a a statement commanding that the enemies of the master are to be killed, right? But you know what? We're not actually told if it happens. Jesus routinely stops telling his parables before he actually ends them. This parable doesn't have an ending. In other words, we learn what the master's enemies deserve. We don't learn what they actually receive. Wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that An order is given to kill someone that's not carried out. Remember, Abraham himself is ordered to kill his son until he's then ordered otherwise. Jesus doesn't tell us what the master's enemies receive, only what they deserve. We're left to kind of ponder the rest on our own. At the beginning of the parable, the master gave all his servants gifts that they didn't deserve or earn. And then when he returns, we see that he's even more generous to the faithful servants. Right? He gives them greater rewards. But even with the unfaithful servant, he doesn't punish him. He doesn't fire him. He just takes back the gift he gave. So, three times in the story, the master demonstrates his generosity. So, even though he publicly pronounces judgment on those who opposed him, that's just the beginning of the proceedings. It's an opening statement, it's not the final word. We're left to wonder how someone who has already demonstrated his generosity three times will actually end up dealing with the people who oppose him so strongly. So the way yeah. we live our lives affects how we see God. It affects the lens through which we see him, the way we understand his character. The unfaithful servant in this story had a, dis- had a distorted view of his master, which led him to completely misjudge his character. And he wasn't unfaithful because of his distorted view. He was unfaithful because he refused to publicly declare his loyalty to a master who was absent while living in a world that opposed his master's rule. Because he's afraid. He's unwilling to risk anything for his master. And see, that is so often where we find ourselves. We're unwilling to risk ourselves for Jesus. We want to keep our heads down. We want to keep our faith in Jesus a private, personal matter so that nobody knows about it. And just to be clear, you can do this even if everybody knows you go to church because we've created a world in which you can go to church, you can be involved, and then you can still live your life just like everybody else. We've created a world where the church is just one of many charities, where it's just one of many social organizations, and being part of it doesn't really require anything from us other than maybe occasional giving, semi-regular attendance, and lip service to the idea of a good and loving God. You see, when we live that way, when we insist on keeping our faith private and personal, we adopt a distorted, inaccurate vision of who God is. We begin to take the things that the world upholds as good and righteous, and assume that these must be the things God values as well. Just like the unfaithful servant in the story, misjudges who his master is, all because he was unfaithful from the start. But see, there is never, <clears throat> there is never any hint. In the Bible, not one word anywhere in Scripture that suggests that our faith in God is meant to be a private, personal thing. And in this parable, Jesus makes it explicit that he wants followers who will be public in their loyalty to him. As he's talking to his disciples in this parable, he knows he's about to leave them. He's going to ascend to heaven after his resurrection. He's going to leave them in this world to carry on his work while waiting for him to return. And he knows that this world will oppose his rule. Jesus gives gifts to his disciples for them to use in his service. He knows he's ascending to heaven to be enthroned as the king of all creation. He anticipates returning in his own good time to deal with both the faithful and the unfaithful. And so he's given us all we need in order to be faithful servants. Our gifts, meaning our our skills, our abilities, our our natural talents, as well as things like our education and our wealth, and even our physical bodies, all are meant to be used for the service of God. And we will have to give an accounting for how we use them when he returns. The expectation that Jesus has for us is that we will demonstrate courageous public faithfulness to an unseen master in an environment where some will actively oppose his rule. And the reward for faithfulness is, is um, it's not like a big fancy mansion or a nice yacht, although I won't turn those down if someone offers. Um, it, it's, it's not an easy, comfortable life. It's not the sort of material blessings we tend to want. No, no, the reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. That's the reward for faithfulness. Okay, you did well on this, now go do this. He who is faithful with a little will be rewarded with much. When we demonstrate our faithfulness, God entrusts us with greater responsibilities as disciples. Meanwhile, our unfaithfulness distorts our view of Jesus, but it seems that even in the midst of unfaithfulness, Jesus is gracious. The unfaithful servant loses the gift, but he's not punished. Jesus expects loyalty from his followers. He knows that we'll face opposition because the world we live in will actively oppose his rule. And in his own good time, Jesus is coming back and he'll ask us to account for how we've used the gifts he's given us. And he's generous to the faithful, rewarding their faithfulness with increased responsibility. And he's generous to the unfaithful servant. He chooses not to punish the unfaithful servant in the parable. And clearly, he takes this active, conscious opposition to his rule seriously. He makes clear that what those who oppose him deserve, but the sentence isn't carried out. There's room there. There's room for the enemies of the master to cast themselves on his mercy, to repent. And all of that is, is good and deep and rich and good for us to think about. But the most striking part of the story is what the servants are commended for. Faithfulness. A journalist once asked Mother Teresa how she could keep going day after day, knowing that she would never be able to meet the needs of all the poor, suffering, and dying people in the streets of Calcutta. I mean, knowing that for every one person she helped, there might be 10 or 20 more out in the streets she would never be able to reach her response was, I am not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. Because we live in a world that is actively opposed to the rule of Jesus, we can't always expect to be successful. And that's not Jesus' expectation either. But we can always be faithful. And there may be times when those things line up, when being faithful is not an impediment to success, and actually when being faithful might lead to success. But there may also be times when we have to make a choice. When being successful in this world could mean being unfaithful. Which is, of course, exactly the choice made by the unfaithful servant in the story. Right? He chose to play it safe. He chose to wait and see how the political situation would shake out before taking any risks He sacrificed his faithfulness on the altar of worldly wisdom. He made the wrong choice. We will, at times, find our faith in conflict with the world we live in. We will find ourselves having to choose to sacrifice things, comfort, success, careers, in order to be faithful. And if that seems harsh, if it seems like it's maybe too much that's being asked of us, let's not forget how far God was willing to go in his faithfulness to us. Jesus was arrested publicly. He was beaten. He was kept in a dungeon beneath the high priest's house while he waited an illegal trial. Here's a picture of it. Oh, come on. So close. There we go. The stairs are new. By the way, so the stairs are kind of, you can see, just a, it's just a hole in the rock. Go to the next picture. The hole is how he got in and out of the dungeon. Check if the device is on your home wi network. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. The hole in the ceiling is how he got lowered into the dungeon. There was no door, there were no windows, there was no staircase. Lowered in on ropes after being beaten to the point of being physically bloody because he's kept in the dungeon until the blood dries so that the high priest won't get blood on him. And then raised back out of the hole in the roof to face his trial. After which, he's handed over to the Roman soldiers who chained him in a different dungeon, who beat him again, who whipped him till he bled again. And then finally, he's executed using a method so unimaginably cruel and painful that we had to invent a new word just to describe the level of suffering excruciating. That is the measure of his faithfulness to us. He doesn't ask from us anything which he himself has not already done. And the reality is we are the lucky ones. Our public faithfulness is never going to be a matter of life and death. We don't live in a place where being a Christian is physically dangerous. But that does not mean that we live in a place that is friendly to Jesus' rule. We will still face difficult decisions. We will still have to choose faithfulness in ways that are risky. Some of you may already have done so. Some of you may very well have made choices that resulted in making less money, being less successful, being less comfortable than you would have been if you'd been willing to be unfaithful. For some of you, those choices may still be in your future. And perhaps some of you have chosen to be unfaithful. And now you have trouble seeing God as he truly is. For those who are unfaithful, Jesus still offers mercy and graciousness. You can still come to him. You can still seek him. And you'll still be welcomed. For those who have already made the difficult choices, he's offered you greater responsibility as his disciples. And the question is, what will you do with it? And for those who haven't yet had to make the choice, we already know how the story ends. The servants in this parable didn't have that advantage. They didn't know. But you and I know. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know he's already been enthroned as king. You know that the vast majority of your existence lies on the other side of the grave. And that's the perspective we have to have in mind when Jesus asks us to be publicly faithful to him, even in the face of opposition. But we should also remember this. When push came to shove, Jesus went to the cross for us. What will we do in return? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.